motivates you? Take a second and think about that. You think, I'll sip. What motivates you? Now I'm going to give some, uh, wow, there it is. Somebody just threw the money one out there. Okay. That was rhetorical that time. But here, some people, are, I'm going to give a list. Of, and I actually didn't have that, but that's crazy because that's a, that's a big one. Money motivate, motivates a lot of people. Here's, here's some basics. Some people are motivated by concern. Okay. So some people have a, a real concern about something, a project, a cause. So they move and they're motivated. Think about it. some people are motivated by passion, inspiration. They're inspired. Some people are motivated by guilt. And they feel guilty about something, so they go, well, I, uh, it's my fault. I better move. I better do something. Some people are motivated by fear, right? I mean, they're afraid, so fear brings fight or flight. Or I don't know what, if there's a, a word that starts with the letter F that means paralyzed, but that's sometimes with fear, people just don't move. They're, they're, um, that's probably the fright thing. Some are motivated by joy. It makes them happy. Some are motivated by sadness. They don't want to be sad, so they'll go in the other direction. Others are motivated by achievements, and, and some are motivated by others' achievements. You see somebody do something, they go, I can do that. It's kind of wrong when you're thinking, I can do that better. But some people are motivated by that. All kinds of things motivate us. In the last 20 years or so, one of the most common motivating factors we repeatedly see are before and after pictures. I think we got a few. Do we have any before and after pictures on there? Theoretically, we have some, some, it's coming up. All right. Now, can we get any of those to blow up? At this point, we're in the launch phase of the, <laughs> all right. So this is a shot of me a couple of years ago. And then <laughs> I actually have a, a good friend that I taught at Charlotte Christian. It was part of Grace, Southbrook, and then this that's coming to uh, Mark Brown. And he was, he's sick today, and he was going to come and do a live one of these for us because literally he was like me the before, and now he's into bodybuilding and just ripped. And he, so he's really got a story of that. I would have loved to bring a, a live person up. Why do we have Drew Carey there? Is that true? Yeah, I'm not feeling it. Next. All right, who's it? Who do we got here? That looks like somebody I know. All right, move on. Next. Before and after, before and after, okay? So enough of that. <clears throat> There's extreme makeover. Sometimes we see pictures like this and we go, you know what? I'm tired of being like this. I'm tired of being how I am. I, I want to I wanna change. Thinking of Sumo, didn't you, didn't you lose like, like, come on. I mean, yeah, look, it's a small group. He's been working out and, uh, man, the guy's, a, the guy's a beast up here. And, and but you've been you're doing pretty good. Now listen, he's been doing it this in a godly way. The more Red Bull, the more I go after people. Just come on. I mean, you're sharing it with me. You're proud. You've been doing good. It's okay. Like like 30, 40, 50, 65 pounds. Wow. That's in the last two weeks on the setup team. That's it. He's lost that much doing that. Uh, but sometimes people are gang not motivated. That's my wife apologizing. That's what she does. Goes around the room, fixes all the things I mess up. So here's the deal. We're in this book of Nehemiah. They're rebuilding the wall. And 141 years and, and all these attempts, and nobody can rebuild this wall. Why not? They weren't motivated. They had leaders sent from captivity from Babylon. You know, about 100 miles away. I said 500 before. That's really about 100 miles away. But it might as well be 500. They didn't have their Lexus they'd jump into. And so they'd come, try to rally the people, try to get the wall rebuilt in Jerusalem, and it would not happen. It didn't happen. So uh, what was the difference? And, and sadly, you look at this, and you, you see good leaders like Ezra 
who was a prophet of God who came and we still couldn't get any work done on the wall. Got some work done on the temple. But here it is. I want you to first see this. They had everything they needed. They were God's people. All right, so they're chosen. This was Jerusalem, God's city. Uh, this is his temple. Even though God cannot dwell in a, does not dwell in just one place with four walls, he's everywhere. He chose to dwell among the people in that temple. Here's his temple. It's the right vision. It comes straight from his truth and his word. It's the right mission. So why didn't it happen? For 141 years, it didn't happen. And everything's right. Everything's lined up. And the sad thing is, it's as simple as this. It didn't happen again because the people just flat out weren't motivated. We have a great cause. And when I say we, I don't just mean Impact Church. When I say we, I mean Christians at large have the greatest cause on earth. We're the best cause. And you look at our country, it's a little bit embarrassing, isn't it? It seems like Christians aren't motivated. We're motivated by a lot of things, aren't we? But we're not motivated by what we should be. I heard that. I log it all. <clears throat> well, here's why. And, and this is the first time I've ever thought about it this way. The same things that motivate us, gang, also demotivate some of us. So some people are demotivated by concern, where it motivates others. They're very concerned about something, so they're demotivated. I can't do anything about that. Isn't that weird? They're demotivated by passion. They get real passionate about it. But again, they're thinking, but I don't want to get out of control. I don't want to be a freak about it. I don't want to. They're demotivated by guilt. Instead of the guilt going, I've got to do this. I messed it up. I've got to fix it. They're saying, I'm too bad of a person. I screwed up. I can't fix it. So it's the same thing. They're demotivated by fear. Instead of fight, it's flight. They go the other way. Some people are demotivated by sadness, demotivated by other people's achievements. It doesn't inspire them. The before and afters. They look at that and they go, oh, now I know how far I have to go. I can't. So here's what I'm saying. Everybody's got the same half-filled-up glass of water. But you've heard this before. But some people, why is it some people look at it and go, that's half-full? And some people look at life and go, my life's half-empty. When we're all, especially as believers, we have the same thing. We're looking at the same glass. But we see it different. So what makes the difference? And here's what I want you to get. I'm going to say it over and over again. And the beatings will continue until you guys get this. The power is in together. The power, and you see this with, with Nehemiah, is in together, this word together. There's power in that. Instead of being lone rangers, working together. So what happened all those 141 years worth of attempts at rebuilding? Was it just generation of generation after people who didn't care? Was it that you know they had the equivalent of the boomers back then? And the busters and the Gen X and the boomers, you know, they only cared about themselves, so they wouldn't build it. And then the, the busters are, you know, they're, they're a little more selfish even than the boomers. The Gen X, well, the reason it's called Gen X is because we really haven't figured them out. We don't know who they are. What, do we have any Gen Xers here that I just offended? Oh, good. There's none. The uh, Generation Y. And then they're saying now that this generation is the whatever generation. That's the name of it. This is the, the generation coming up now is the whatever generation. How's that for not being able to have a name and sticking whatever on there? What comes before boomers, by the way? <clears throat> Who knows? Builders. Builders. So that's what's missing. And maybe you can look at this and go, well, that, that's right. They didn't. It was the people's fault. None of those groups you mentioned would be motivated. Builders. You need builders to do this. Well, it's not exactly the whole problem. How can you build without all these people together, there's actually value in the generation Y. There's actually value in the X and the busters and the boomers and the builders all together. Some of the generation Y and the whatever generation actually are, are so artistically, uniquely artistically gifted, so creative. What if you could harness that? 
instead of just saying, well, they're whatever, you know, some people put them down. Older folks say, I don't understand them. I don't get them. And there's kind of an alienation and there's kind of a silo mentality. So we don't work together. What if you really could weave them together and get the value and harness the value of all those generations? So if you don't do that, it's sort of like doing this. It's sort of like building a house and you've got no concrete, no slab, just two by four stuck in the sand. Building a house because the, the tide goes out. It's low tide. And so you rush to the beach and say, I always wanted a beach house. Don't have time to do a foundation. So you take two, two by fours, you just jam them into the sand. And you build a great, and you've got 100 men working on this thing. So you build a beautiful frame of a, of a mansion. It looks great. And uh, it's getting a little bit late. The tide's kind of coming in, but you're not worried because it looks strong. And you put a roof on that thing, and now it looks beautiful, and the tide comes all the way in. And what's going to happen by the morning? It's gone. It washes away because you didn't have everything together. You need a foundation. You need a frame. You need a roof. You need all of it. But especially, you need a foundation. be crazy to do this. So watch this. And when I say watch this, what do you think I mean? Watch this. Yeah. I'm the this in this. Watch. Pay attention to what I'm going to say. It's this recipe. Our great God plus great and godly leadership plus Fully committed followers gives you the power to bring about a movement. And, and Nehemiah, somehow, he saw all that. Through his prayer and fasting for months, he, he saw all the pieces. He just brought it all together. And he harnessed the power of together. I've taught Nehemiah. This is my third time. And I never have seen that. So I'm going to say it again because none of you wrote it down. Not one person. My wife wrote it down. What a good woman. She wrote it down. So here it is. Our great God plus great and godly leadership plus fully committed followers gives you the power to bring about or equals a movement of God. Not just a, a church, but a movement. <clears throat> Without the full recipe, you won't get a, uh, let's take, let's take, I'm going to give you three categories of these things we need to have together. One of them is the home, the family. Well, without the full recipe I just gave you, you won't get a strong home. You'll get a, a house of cards. It might look good, but the slightest little troubles in life comes in. It just blows it right down. What's that? Oh, my goodness. All right. Our great God plus great and godly leadership plus fully committed followers gives you the power to bring about a movement. That last part's too long. How about equals a movement? That's, that's a little bit better. <clears throat> Here's one thing I found out. Here's an illustration of how this doesn't work. I want you to get this. How many of you are married? Let me see the married folks. All right. All of you. Even even a kid. No. Every, every. I, I used to do a lot of marriage counseling and probably going to be doing it again. I'm thinking at this stage. So the counseling and marriage counseling. And um, I've only had my track record, all the weddings and did a lot of them back then is nobody had gotten divorced. Now, one couple out of everybody ever did now has, but pretty good track record. Here's why. Because we did like six months of marriage counseling. But here's what happens today. You see couples, and, and some couples I've seen plan for a year for a 20-minute ceremony. And maybe an hour or two of dancing and stuff afterwards. And that's the wedding day, especially ladies. Come on, you know this is true. They put an immense and obscene amount of planning and time into that one couple-hour ceremony. And you talk to these people, and, and you most of them will say that they didn't even put the amount of time that the pastor spoke in a 20-minute ceremony, 40 if I'm doing it, at the max, they didn't even put that much time into counseling, into laying a foundation for the marriage. Because they go, well, we've been dating for about a year. Well, what do you got in common? We both love sports. <laughs> okay, that'll carry you pretty far. Half the population you could have married, according to just that. Well, what about this? Well, we both are 
I like the way she looks. She's hot. That, that's it? That's it? I like him. He looks like he'll be successful, and I think he could take care of That's it? That's not a foundation. We're back to the beach. We're back to the sand. We're back to shoving the two-by-fours into the sand. It's not going to last. The first little thing that comes rolling in is going to wipe you out. That's why marriages don't last. Because you're working on the wall, maybe, but the wrong section of the wall. All right, last week we left off with a familiar rallying cry that the Jews were somewhat used to hearing. Here it is, verse 17 of chapter 2. Nehemiah said to them, You see the trouble that we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. There's nothing left there. So come, let's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we'll still no longer be in disgrace anymore. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And then they replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And I look at this and I read this, and sometimes the Bible goes pretty fast, and you don't see what's in between, and you're going, what? Nehemiah gives a 30-second speech, and everybody is, is, is pulling up their cement trucks and opening stone quarries and starting construction unions, and they're ready to go. And Well, no, remember, there's a lot that came before this speech. He's not just a guy that got up and said, okay, I'll lead it. They picked me. We drew straws. The difference is in everything Nehemiah has been doing leading up to that point. It's all the pre-launch stuff. All the months of prayer, all the fasting, all the planning, all the preparing that we've been talking about in the weeks leading up to this. He's prayed and planned hard about how to bring everyone together on this because Nehemiah, I guess he heard from the Lord. It's going to work this time, Nehemiah, because I'm behind it. It's going to work because when you get there, I want you to pull all the people together. I want you to find their gifts. I want you to find their similarities. I want you to look. And last week we heard that he took three nights and he in moonlight, he rode his donkey with a select group of men and went all the way around the wall and surveyed the situation. Okay, how bad is it? So his concern could get higher because he was motivated by concern. And some people say, well, man, he must have had incredible faith. That's how he did it. And he did. He had huge faith, obviously, to, to approach the king when he could have been killed for it. He did have huge faith, but faith alone is not going to do it. Man. A lot of people I meet are like, I've got huge faith. You know, I believe God can do anything, but why doesn't he? I mean, why doesn't God do more in my life, Pastor Robert? I really do believe. Huge faith. So many awesome things that I want to do. I've got a lot of ideas, but I've never really done anything for God. Why? Why don't I ever see much happen with my faith? If you really want to know, if you're ready for it, because it might not be that fun, I'll tell you why. It's because, first of all, you need to move out. And not just pray about your faith and not just feel your faith and go, and I, you know, God, I'm filled with joy and I have great big faith. At some point, you're going to have to get up off your blessed assurance, let's call it that, and actually move out. But instead of asking God to help you do great things, why not find out where God is already moving and join him? Do you see the difference? Why not find out what projects God already authorizes and says, I want you to do these things. You know, how about my bride? Jesus loved the church so much he died for it. So Jesus is behind the church. So find out what Jesus is behind, join him there, and then watch him do great things through you. But don't just say, well, I'd like to be, I don't know, I want to win a gold medal in a sport. I want to be a great athlete. That's you. <clears throat> That's not necessarily God's will. So find out what he's about and join others in that. Because remember, there's power in together. You guys are going to have to repeat that because it's not working. There's power in together. Don't forget that, because if he didn't have that, this is a flop. This doesn't work. So you actually do have to get up and move. 
If you have big faith that something can get done for God, then start doing that something that you believe that's God's thing. By the way, James 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So the Rob Singleton paraphrase is, What good is it if you say, I believe, and you don't move? You don't do anything. Can that faith save him? And that's not my question. That's James. So let me ask you. Can that faith save a person? I believe I raised my hand. I believe if you never show any kind of change and you never move one inch for God, I'm going to say that wasn't saving faith. But I'm not going to, that's not my opinion. We'll go on and you'll see it. <clears throat> it fails the other way too. Others are more into activity. Maybe some of you are more into this. Uh, they're involved in 10 different causes, 10 different uh, ministries. They're out every night of the week learning more about Jesus and taking more classes, but they see little more than the big faith, no works crowd kind of the other way around. They don't see anything either. Why? Because they're big works, no faith. That's the other side. The pendulum swings both ways. Hebrews 11.6 says the opposite. When they go together, they're not opposing. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not to have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's both. There's power in together. So Nehemiah doesn't just inspire their hearts. He doesn't, he's not just a great speaker. He unveils his plan, and that inspires their feet to move and their hands to work. And here's how it begins. And <clears throat> I'm going to butcher some of these words because I, don't, I took four years of Hebrew, and I still can't speak it. I had neighbors across the street for 10 years from Tel Aviv who spoke Hebrew, and I could actually at first speak to them, and then it vanished. Now I'm down to the point where I see Hebrew words, and I go, blah, 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 watermelon or whatever, I can't say it. Then he Eliashib, let's move on. The high priest rose up, this is uh, chapter 3 now, with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. That means they set it aside and, and separated it and worked on it. They consecrated as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel. <clears throat> Hananel. And next to him, remember that phrase, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, remember that, Zukar the son of Imri built. The sons of Hazenah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and next to them, Miramoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekaz, repaired. And next to them, Mishalem, the son of, oh, let's just go on in there. And next to those guys, Zadok, the son of Bana, that's pretty easy, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. Now listen to this. It's just kind of thrown in there. You will never see it again. Because this next to them stuff goes on and on. This is as far as we're going to go this week. Next week, we're actually still going to be uh, in chapter 3 because it's got a completely two completely different messages. They're both important. Listen to this. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. So you got all these people next to them. They joined hands. And then they joined with this group and this family and this clan and this these priests. And they all worked together. But their nobles would not stoop. Would not stoop to serve the Lord? That's stooping? The Lord's work? Now let me read it a little different. This is the Rob Singleton paraphrase. <clears throat> then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers the priests, and they built the sheep gate, giving it all they had. Next to him, the men of Jericho built, giving it 110%. Next to them, Zuchar, the son of Imri, built from sunup to sunset. The sons of Hanasseh built the fish gate, better than new. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired as though it had never been broken. And next to them, Shulam, the son of whatever, and the son of whoever, repaired the same way. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired too. All three groups almost trying to outdo each other in a friendly competition. And next to them, the Tekoites refused to come in second. All through the chapter, we see this. 
I'm just trying to pound home the next to them, next to them, next to them, because there it was, and I missed it every time I went to a new mom. Where's the power? The power's in together. Everybody, nobody's sitting around except this one group, and they will not be able to enjoy the, the joy and, and the worship and everybody together. In fact, when everybody celebrates at the end of this book, they're going to be looking at that group, and they're going to feel like fools because they didn't participate. The, everyone's working hard as unto the Lord, giving it everything that they've got. No one's doing a second-rate job. No one's just going through the motions. And here are the three key words, and hopefully you picked up on it, and hopefully you write this down. <clears throat> Most important three words in chapter 3, next to them. Next to them. In other words, everyone did this as one. They're unified in the work. They're unified in the vision. And that's another reason, gang, why the wall that couldn't get built for 141 years got built better than ever in 52 days. I mean, we're talking about a wall that, in fact, you can get that ready, Kendall, that um, once you kind of see, this doesn't really show the wall. Actually, do you have that picture of the wall, a, a section of the sheep gate? You can see that just looking at the sheep gate, um, this is uh, the sheep gate in the section of Nehemiah's wall. Um, imagine this is just, this wall is two miles long. This is just a portion of it. They built, and it would have looked like this is one of the gates they had, just kind of letting you see that this is not putting up a, a split rail fence in your backyard. This is a massive project. <clears throat> and they got it done almost two miles long, about 10 to 12 feet um, high, about four or five feet thick. Massive, massive project. There's power in together. Now, I want us for the rest of our time together, which is not hopefully that long, to zoom in and take a closer look at what's really happening here. Some really great lessons. First of all, it wasn't just the wall the people worked on. It was the temple, the wall, and their homes. It was the temple, the wall, and their homes. This book is all about the wall, but if you look closer, there's other things they're working on. All of them together. If you really just work on one of these, it's not going to happen. Now, let me translate that for us, because we don't really have the temple we go to, and we're not working on a wall and, and their houses. That doesn't really... So here's what it is. They're working together on the church a defense of the truth and their families. It's the same thing. They're working on the church, defending the truth, that's the wall, and their families, that's working by their houses. There's the building blocks of any great society, even today. It's what originally actually made our nation great, and because we're ignoring these things now, it's why our nation is not so great anymore. If we would focus on these things, gang, instead of just the economy, we'd be a great nation again. They're simple building blocks. There's power in together. Nehemiah really got this. All great leaders do. So I'm going to break down these three things, and that's what we're going to really uh, hone in on today. First, there's power in families working together. Families working together. Why did uh, Nehemiah put people together? As you read on in this, he'll say that he actually took families, as you go through this, and had them work on the section of the wall that was closest to their houses. And some of you, in hearing that, you might go, Oh, that's not going to take a great leader. That's just logical, right? Isn't that logical to, to do that? You've got to break them up somehow. And I would say to you, I don't think it's logical at all. When you see massive building projects, what building project have you ever seen where people do that? I mean, Egypt would have been in those days, the pyramids and all. They didn't have families work on sections of the pyramid. They would have taken the strongest men and put them in the heaviest lifting. So in this one, <clears throat> honestly, what does make sense on this one is to take people, the strongest men, and gather them together and maybe put them working on a section of the wall. Do you remember last week? Who was here last week? 
All right, working on a section of the wall where Nehemiah with his donkey looking around. Remember the section came to where he couldn't even get his donkey through? There was so much rubble, he had to go way out of town to get around. It was just, well, put him there, right? Take the strongest men and take take the biggest group of men and put them there because that's the biggest project. But he didn't do that at all. This is counterintuitive. This is strength. He puts it, breaks everybody up by family, men, women, and children. says, you work on the section of the wall right by your house. Work on the section of the wall right by your house. And here, I want you to look at two scenarios and see why he did that. Because I want you to come up with it. I don't, I don't want to just give it to you. I want you to come up with it. Scenario number one. Let's put up that. There it is. You're so far ahead of me, it's not even funny. So you live, your house happens to be by the King's Garden in the southeast section of the city. That's this right here. Here's the wall in Nehemiah's day. Just give you a perspective of how big it was. In King David's day, uh, here's his wall around the city of Jerusalem. Everything, all the glory in the palace of King David and everything you read about, that's this. Nehemiah's wall, it had grown to that. Uh, so let's say you live down here by the King's Garden and you wake up in the morning and you get up, you make your lunch, you say goodbye to your wife, kiss your wife goodbye, kids, hop aboard your Ford Mule Z28, trot up all the way to the northeast area of the city to work next to the fish gate up here. So you live here, but you go work there because you heard there's a lot of damage and they're just trying to break up the different stone, stone core unions. And, and Nehemiah gave you a little note and said, you are in charge, you're the foreman, go up there, take your group work there. I don't care where you live. doesn't matter. We don't really know anybody there. North part of town. All your friends and family live down south. Everyone up there is calling you a redneck. They're asking you, do you eat anything other than barbecue? Say barbecue. I want to hear how you say that. They're also trying to get you to say y'all. When I first moved here from California, I tried to get people to say that because I was fascinated. Y'all, just how they talk. Took me 10 years to say that. They want to hear you talk so they can laugh at you. It's not ideal. You don't have a lot in common. It's not where you've lived your life. You're down south. They're up north. Got a few people that are acquaintances. That's it. Or scenario number two. You get up. You have breakfast with your family. Kiss your wife and kids. Walk 15 feet out your front door and begin to work on that part of the wall that stands between you and the enemies that want to kill you and your family. Okay. What are the chances that you are going to slap the mortar on there and throw the stones together and do a crummy job on the wall that's right outside your home where your wife and kids live? Zero. What are the chances are that you're going to build probably wall of the year award type stuff right there? <clears throat> 100%. 100%. You're going to do a way better job. I never see people build teams like this. How did Nehemiah know this? If you want to get the wall done, it's going to get done better. It's going to get done quicker. It's going to be stronger because he, he put people working where it mattered most to them. Now, put this with the church, and that means align people with their giftedness. Put people in a volunteer role where they're gifted. If you're a teacher and your job is to be, is to be the accountant and count the money and you, you couldn't even, you got no further than Algebra 1, that's me, anybody else? All right, just Algebra 1 people. I was kind of a C guy when it came to math. If that, so you don't want me to do it. I can't. You know, you get past addition, and I'm done. I can't really do it. So, And that's not my gifts. But imagine putting me in that role. I probably wouldn't thrive. I'd try to maybe learn how to do it and do it the best I could, and it probably wouldn't be that good. And that's what happens. We just throw people in a job and say, we got a bunch of us. we got manpower. Let's do it. This is the power of together, which is way better.
Because here's the here's the thing. You look at this, you go, it's building a wall. I can't relate. You really can. You really can. So anybody, raise your hand if you're not a part of a family, but you beamed here from another planet. Okay, so everybody's here. Kendall, I knew that about you. But everybody else is in a family, so you're not just building a wall. You're building a family. You're taking care of a family. Not only does the wall have to work, but it has to work for you right there first. If it doesn't work at home, it won't work at all. If your life's not working at home, it's not going to work anywhere else. Your family gets hurt or killed or ruined, and you aren't going to care about much else, are you, here? So many people today, and I said this before, and I really mean it, are so worried. What's the big issue in this election coming up? <clears throat> There's an election coming up. You guys aware of that? Good. It's the economy. It's like the only issue. And I'm thinking as I look at our country, that, that's, that's an issue. You want to fix it? Why don't you look at these three issues that we're looking at in Nehemiah? Watch the economy fix itself. Watch the economy, or watch God bless the economy like he's done when we are a more godly nation. Why are we so worried about symptoms and Band-Aid issues and not treating the disease? It's hard to see that. Really, it, it looks like our, our, our nation and our leaders don't get it. So what do we do? We get Ivy League grads and CEO millionaires working on the economy. A lot of these same people, if you look at their personal life, got a lot of money, but their kids hate them and they're on their fourth marriage. So their personal life's a wreck. So they're working on Band-Aid issues. I would say it this way. They're working on the wrong section of the wall. It's not getting it done well. They're working on the wrong section of the wall. People worried about trivial things. Now I'm going to pick on you guys because you're going, well, I'm going to, that's going to hit home. So get ready for ouch time. People worried about trivial things like what sports their kids are going to play in the next Olympics. Am I right? Somebody drop a pin on the floor. I think we could hear it. Here's what it is. Look at the ball fields, you know, Optimus Park every weekend. And you think it was the parking lot at Universal Studio. It's so crammed. It's so full parents traveling every weekend with little Johnny who's eight because he needs to get ready to play on the high school team one day on his way to the NCAA on route to the pros. Really? Really? Man, I'm getting hardly any amens or any... I'm, I've, I've counted exactly zero. But just hear me out. I, I, I knew that I would get this, so let me, let me just give you the facts. The startling facts. Some of you are not coming back. Thanks for checking out Impact Church. See you in heaven. But seriously, here's the stats. 100, these are 10 years old. 156,096 is the number of high school seniors playing boys' high school basketball. I'm not just taking basketball. <clears throat> and don't sit there and go, my son plays soccer. This doesn't apply. No, it's worse for soccer. 4,735 is the number of NCAA freshman positions in men's basketball. That's NCAA. If you don't, and you go, well, I'm, I'm going to go to a lower-ranked college. Well, then you're not going to the pros. You've got to go to the NCAA. From 156,000 down to 4,000 already. Next, 3% of athletes who transition from high school to the NCAA. 3%. 44. Not 44%. 44 total number of NCAA athletes who transition into pro basketball. 0.03 of a percent of high school athletes who eventually make it to pro basketball. Now, if you look around and see what we're doing in sports and all the prep work, it looks like we're a nation prepping Olympic athletes. To me, maybe I'm alone.
but it looks like we're putting all our eggs or a lot of them in that basket. And some of these same parents come back to me years later and they go, my, my son's at college. He's not going to church. He's not involved in anything. I don't know if he believes in God. Help me. What did I do wrong? I want to say, what did you do right? What did you do right? I don't say that because that they're hurting and it's not the right time. But I want to say to you, people who have kids still start now prepping them on the right section of the wall. If you're not there yet, let me give you another percentage, a higher one, an alarmingly high percentage. More than 50% of Christian kids, by the time they finish college, will walk away from God, their faith, church, everything. You want a high percentage? Why is that so high? Is that just a coincidence? What happens? No, believe it or not, you're prepping your kid to walk away from God. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. Now, I'm not saying you like you guys here. I'm saying you like America. We really are. Follow the breadcrumb trail. I said it last week. If you follow it back, you'll say, you'll be horrified at what you do. Now, watch this. I can't remember meeting a single parent who ever told me, yeah, I'm not surprised Sarah walked away from God. That was our plan. Never met that parent, ever. That's what her mother and I were working toward. Yep, we had it all planned out. Sports instead of church, check. Make fun of the Christian kid who always talks about Jesus, check. Tell Sarah not to be a Jesus freak, check. I'd say it worked out pretty good. She hates God. Never met that parent. But I can look back as they tell me what they did, and I can say, you might as well have been that parent. You had a plan. You had a subconscious plan to route your kid away from God because they watched you, and they looked at your life, and they thought, they say stuff about God, but here's what I'm going to say. My dad, my mom, I don't think they really care about God. I think it's just this. I know that hurts, but if it turns you around and you change now, it'll be pain that's worth it. I know some of you, Pastor Rob, I understand you, Pastor, get a little extreme. You're so cute. We take Junior to church as regularly as we can. That's just it. Regularly for some people, I found it is like Christmas and Easter. <clears throat> some I know haven't been in the Lord's house for six months. Again, you're working on the wrong section of the wall. You're working on the wrong section of the wall. And some people told me here, well, you guys are starting a church. Pastor Rob, I'll, I'll say what they say. I, it's not... Listen, I don't put too much stock in criticism that's, you know, unwarranted or compliments that are unwarranted. Each week, believe it or not, I'm going, God, <laughs> that's a five-minute warning, and I got at least 50 minutes. Well, how did that happen? I don't put a lot of stock in that because every week I'm going, God, what do you want me to say? Some weeks that's going to offend people. Some weeks it's going to really inspire them, but it's got to be what he wants me to say. <clears throat> You're working on the wrong section of the wall. Build them up in the Lord. We should be far more concerned about the state of our families and marriages than we are about the economy. Number two. Wow, there's three of these things. There's power in people working together in the church. There's power in a whole team. Everybody, every member thinking they're a minister. There's power in that church. Rather than just the church following the American business model and, and hiring a pastor and a couple more and letting them do all the ministry. Let's say you're a church that has three pastors and a thousand members. What's more powerful, three people doing all the ministry or a thousand people doing all the ministry? Obviously a thousand, yet we have it backwards. So they worked on the church. Well, if you've been with us the last several weeks, then you know that Ezra returned much earlier than Nehemiah to, to repair the temple. And he got it prepared, and he got it repaired, but he didn't have much luck on the wall. It turns out the two are interrelated, so it was a complete failure. It doesn't matter how much. Watch this. It doesn't matter how much if you have... You have a nice, well-kept, shiny, clean building. 
if no one is coming. It doesn't matter if your church is, is, is multi-million dollars, stained glass windows, beautiful place, and no one's coming. Nearly all the most beautiful churches in Europe are empty. My wife and I, before we had kids, we went to Italy to visit, and we saw some of the most beautiful, hundreds and hundreds of years old cathedrals there. The only people in there ever, even on Sunday morning or Saturday night, are the tourists. They don't even have services anymore. They're tourist distractions, but dead churches, beautiful, worth millions and millions. Nobody's going. Why? Because the church isn't a building. The church is the people. And people can meet anywhere, even clubhouses. I mean, in clubhouses, even school gymnasiums, which is where we're heading next week. I'll get to that, hopefully, if I ever get done. All right. How did that happen? How could he restore the temple and make it real beautiful, and yet nobody's worshiping? Because they didn't feel safe to worship. Because he didn't defend the truth. Because the wall was left down. People weren't going to the temple, so it was a waste. They didn't defend the truth. When you don't defend the truth, truth gets broken down. Pretty soon it lies in ruins, and it's unrecognizable. Let me give you some examples in our country. Why don't we defend prayer? Because we didn't value it enough to even keep it in our schools. So now we don't think it's a big deal. Same thing with Scripture. Why don't we value, Why are we in the most biblically illiterate generation ever? Everybody owns a Bible. You got it on your iPads, your iPhones, and everything. We're biblically Ill- illiterate. Because we kicked it out of the public square, and now it's just not valued. We don't value and defend reverence. So we have generation after generation of irreverent and disrespectful young people. We just do. We haven't defended marriage and family, so families are being marginalized and marriage is being redefined. Is that news to anybody? Because we don't care. Hey, let everybody do it. Now it's being redefined. We don't defend the exclusivity of Jesus as God and the only way to heaven, so people now believe who call themselves Christians that all roads lead to God. How do we get that messed up? We don't defend life, and that's why there have been more than 70 million abortions in the past 40 years, 40 plus years. So we don't defend it. Now, life itself isn't valued. I probably don't need to go on. I got a longer list. I probably don't need to go on. You get it, right? If you don't defend truth, then truth gets watered down. Now they teach in universities is that truth is 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 relevant. If it's relevant to you, then it's true. If it's not relevant to you, then then it's not true. Well, true is true. Period. And it's black and white. It's not a nebulous thing like that. <clears throat> so at that point, it'll become if you let it water down, you don't defend it, it becomes irrelevant. It loses its power. Because people see that no real life change is happening. It doesn't really have power. So no real impact is taking place. So the churches and the temples empty out. And that's what happened here. <clears throat> so since the church was already built, the temple was already built, what about the church they were working on? Well, there's two major areas a church has to function in to thrive. I like the way Mark Driscoll puts it. I'm not going to have time to go into this, but these are very important. Maybe we'll look at it a little bit next week. There's got to be an air war and a ground war is what Driscoll says. I love this. The air war is big stuff like the weekly preaching that I'm doing right now. The podcasts we're getting up. We used to have vodcasts, all the multimedia. Sometimes pastor write books, write, pastors write books or they're on the radio. That's the air war. That's getting the message out in mass. The website, Facebook pages, pastor's blog, those, that's the air war. But churches need to be just as good at the ground war which are the ministries and the life groups and the serving and the volunteering. Churches that are just good at the air war don't see a lot of maturing followers. They don't see a lot of real life change and sanctification. They might see big churches. They might see people that like to come and get entertained, and, and it's a really fun place for an hour, but they don't see a lot of depth because they're focusing on just the air war, not the ground war. <clears throat> the ground war is different. That's ministries. That's 
that's uh, impact groups, life groups, that's doing life together. That's, that's all the one anothering that you see in the New Testament. More than 50% of the commands in the New Testament are, are one another commands. And if you're not in a local body of believers, you can't do it. As a Lone Ranger, you can't follow the one another command. Like serve one another, take care of one another, love one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, teach one another. How can you do that by yourself? You can't. How do you do all these things when you don't even have a church family? <clears throat> Sometimes churches only focus on the ground war, and then they tend to not reach out to the lost. They don't grow. Or if they do, all they're really doing is reshuffling the deck moving people around from one church to another. You need both an air war and a ground war. And here's the last part, and I'll quickly go through this. There's power in defending together. There's power in defending the truth together. I've already said a lot about this, so I don't need to go into it a lot. And even though I have this as number three, the only one that needs to be numbered as number one is the family one. You've got to start at the home and the family. But actually, the power is in together. The power is in all these things together. If you don't stand for something, you ever heard this? going to fall for anything. It's kind of that that Nehemiah seemed to greatly understand. <clears throat> if we don't know the Word of God, defend the Word of God, then we can't lead our families to build strong families, to build a strong, evangelically powerful church. It's impossible because we don't even know what we're teaching because we haven't learned to defend it. And it's why Ezra was unable to rebuild the temple, but if, was able to rebuild the temple, but effectively no one worshiped God as if there was no temple. Because there was no defense strong enough for the people to worship without fear, for the people to see the value in worship. So Nehemiah had success, not simply because he focused on rebuilding the wall, not just because he brought families together, not just because he got everyone defending the truth of God. Here it is. Here's my last sentence. Because he had great success because he did all those things together. There's power in together. I've been in ministry for over 20 years, and I've never been more thrilled about the possibilities of the power of us in this church working together. I think Impact Church is going to be a movement. I believe in you guys because you believe in me. And I think we're going to do a great thing. I really do. They're really, that's not just the same. There's power in together. Amen. Go in peace. See you next week.